prayer time together, shall we? Father God, we thank you that we are found here in your house this evening. We thank you, Lord, that we can bookend our day in this way. Lord, that we can offer our praise, our worship, and our adoration to you. We thank you for these words that we've been able to sing. We thank you that Jesus Christ is enough. We thank you that your grace is enough. And we thank you, Lord, this evening for Jesus Messiah. Lord, we do pray for us now, Lord, that you would just quieten our hearts. Lord, that we'd be attentive to your spirit. And by your spirit, Lord, that you might teach us something new from your word this evening. We just simply thank you for this opportunity to gather and ask, Lord, that you would bless us as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Quick drink. Um, a few, I would say about a year and a half ago, um, I spoke one Sunday morning, and uh, we spoke from <coughs> Galatians, and uh, there's my little clicker, let's get going here, there we are, that was our heading, uh, it was no other gospel from Galatians uh, chapter 1, now never, never let it be said that I have no imagination, tonight no other gospel, part 2, now logically, you might have expected us uh, to look at uh, chapter 2 this evening. But as you read through chapter 2, chapter 2 essentially is all about uh, a, a dispute between Paul uh, and Peter, these two heavyweight uh, apostles. And um, I certainly don't feel experienced enough to get in between two apostles uh, and judge. We'll leave that for somebody wiser than me. So maybe, Ross, if you could look at that uh, next time, that would be good. <laughs> Um, so we're going to look uh, a little bit later on uh, in Galatians uh, chapter 3, but before we read it together, um, I thought I might just recap quickly on what we thought of in chapter 1, and then we will say something about chapter 2, because we can't, can't ignore it uh, completely. Now, it might prove to be a bit of an introduction for us, right? Um, but it's useful because, let's bear in mind that this letter would have been read in one go, and what we think of in chapter 1 and chapter 2 all leads us in very nicely to what we're thinking about uh, in chapter 3 this evening. So hopefully uh, you know where we're headed uh, tonight and uh, we've got loads of time. There's quite a lot to get through, um, but we'll, we'll get there together. Now, you remember, maybe if you were there, you'll remember. I was there and I barely remember, but hopefully you do. Uh, this letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, there was some debate, remember, about the specific group to which Paul wrote, and we, we talked a little bit about this North Galatian theory and this South Galatian theory, but remember, we said what was much more important was why the letter was uh, written. And the simple answer is that serious problems had arisen uh, in the church. There was a new line of teaching that was taking root, uh, teaching that was a fun fundamentally distorted version of the gospel. And Paul's reason for writing was to call this out and to reassert both his own authority uh, and the authority of the one true gospel that he preached. So Paul writes in defense of uh, the gospel. Now in chapter 1, we saw that Paul set out his authority. Paul reminded the Galatian Christians plainly that he was an apostle, that he had full authority. And his apostleship was not by human appointment or by human commission, but having met the risen Lord and been commissioned by him, his authority came directly from Jesus. And this was the very thing uh, that these false teachers were trying uh, to deny him. Now, of course, Paul was neither a disciple nor apostle during Christ's earthly ministry, but he had met with the risen Lord and been commissioned uh, by him. And the fact that Paul was a part 
from the original disciples or apostles who've been used by the false teachers to claim that he was not a true apostle. But Paul was careful to point out that he had been made an apostle by Jesus just as much as had the original uh, 12. In other words, as their spiritual father, as the founder of the churches in Galatia, and as an apostle commissioned by Jesus, they needed to pay attention to what he was about to say as he confronted these false teachers and uh, their false gospel. And Paul deals with a serious challenge being made of the gospel by restating the message of the gospel uh, clearly and plainly for them. Great words. Uh, do you remember if we look back in verses 3 to 5 of uh, chapter 1? Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to him be glory uh, forever and ever. And so Paul points to salvation as God's great rescue plan. The purpose of Christ's death, death was both to bring us forgiveness and that having been forgiven, we should live a new life, all according to God's plan and purposes. And Paul contends here that the price has been paid in full, that sinners have been freed from their slavery to sin. And this was the fundamental issue at the heart of the distorted version of the gospel that the false teachers were preaching. These false teachers wanted to lead people away from the freedom that grace brought back into slavery to the law again. And we'll return to that when we come uh, to chapter 3. Despite the Galatians having received the gospel of grace, they were turning away to this distorted gospel. And it was a gospel that didn't deny that you must believe in Jesus for salvation, but one that had also become a gospel of works, such that by obedience to the law, you finish the work that Jesus had started. And Paul is astounded that the Galatian Christians are turning away from the true gospel. And as I say, he has much more to say about that in chapter 3, as we'll see in a few moments. So Paul calls out these false teachers with uh, some pretty serious words. Go and remind yourself afterwards of what Paul had to say to them about them being under God's curse and being devoted to destruction. We thought about the spiritual judgment that Paul called upon his adversaries, compelled to do so because the heart of the gospel was at stake. Chapter 2. The second half of chapter 1 takes us into chapter 2, and that all relates Paul's personal account of the gospel. We mentioned some of this last time, the fact that the early apostles were unique in their experience of Jesus and their commission by Christ's authority and in their inspiration by Christ's spirit. And if we would bow to his authority, we must also bow to the authority of the teaching of uh, the apostles. Now, the first part of chapter two, very straightforward. Uh, Paul describes his trip to Jerusalem to meet with the other apostles. Paul describes the reason for his trip. You can read that there. It was in response to a revelation, simply uh, that God had told him to go. And we read that Paul goes with respected others. He goes with Barnabas and Titus. Now, he doesn't go to seek the approval of the apostles, but to ensure that his message was not being undermined. If you look at verses uh, 9 and 10 of chapter 2, we have a nice wee uh, summary of what happened. So James, Peter and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should, we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So the message that Paul was preaching to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, 
was the same message being preached to the Jews by the other apostles. So they were entrusted to spread uh, the gospel to these two distinct groups, but it was the same common gospel. This was not being disputed. They agreed on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Jesus was enough. So far, so good. And it would be much easier if we then just jumped uh, straight to chapter 3. But the text doesn't, and so we shouldn't either. What follows in the second uh, half of chapter 2 is a a clash of the titans between Peter and Paul when Peter uh, later uh, comes to, to Antioch. We read of apostles disagreeing. Surely not. But worse still, it's not even a disagreement behind closed doors, round a table perhaps, such as at a deacon's meeting at the manse. But Paul calls Peter out publicly. Two men, Christian giants, men of God, men of faith, both knew what it was to be forgiven through Jesus and to have received the Holy Spirit. Both apostles specially called and commissioned with authority from God. And yet, despite the agreement the apostles had in Jerusalem, here Paul opposes Peter in public. And if you look at verse 11, Paul says that he opposes Peter to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Hashtag awkward. So when Peter first arrived in Antioch, he was quite happy to eat with non-Jews. Peter, a Jewish Christian, uh, enjoyed the fellowship and company of the non-Jewish uh, Christians in Antioch. He didn't consider himself in any way defiled or contaminated as once he would have done. It would seem that upon arrival of a, a strict group of Christians, probably from Jerusalem, Jewish in origin, that Peter began to separate himself from these Gentile Christians that he had previously been happy to eat with. And this would have been in keeping with the strict teaching of this group, as it would have been proper for circumcised Jews to sit at the table with these uncircumcised Gentile believers. Now, are we really to believe uh, that Peter had been converted to this way of thinking, that he has somehow taken a step back into legalism? Well, it simply cannot be the case. We know from the vision that God gave to Peter not to call unclean what God himself had cleansed, a vision that God had given them three times to ensure that he got the point, by the way, that Peter could not have been so easily persuaded by this group. Remember in the sermon that Peter himself preached to the household of Cornelius, prompted to go there on account of that vision, Peter said, truly I perceive that God shows no partiality. And when the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles who believed, Peter agreed that they must receive <coughs> excuse me, Christian baptism and be welcomed into the Christian church. So, why then would Peter seemingly give in to this behaviour? Well, according to Paul, it was out of fear of this group. And let's remember that Peter does have some previous here, denying Jesus to a servant girl out of fear. Now, it's important to note that Paul does not suggest that Peter was preaching a false gospel. This is not heresy in the same way that Paul was accusing the false teachers of, but he does charge Peter with hypocrisy. According to Paul, Peter was play-acting, acting insincerely and not from personal conviction. Paul was saying that in effect, Peter was implying by his actions that was a level of real Christian or super-Christian where Jewish requirements were still bound up in the Christian faith. And Paul's concern was that Peter, by his actions, was quite literally not practicing what he preached. 
Here's what John Stott writes in his commentary on Galatians. He says, this is important. If Paul had not taken his stand against Peter that day, either the whole Christian church would have drifted into a Jewish backwater and stagnated, or there would have been a permanent rift between Gentile and Jewish Christendom. One Lord, but two Lord's tables. Paul's outstanding courage on that occasion in resisting Peter preserved both the truth of the gospel and the international brotherhood of the church. A few years ago, uh, Don Carson spoke at Keswick on this chapter, and he took 50 minutes, by the way, on these few verses. But this is what I wrote down from his conclusion. He said, When the heart of the gospel is at stake, nothing is more important, not even apostolic unity. Unity in the Bible is not an absolute good. Truth is an absolute good, but unity is a relative good. It depends on the situation. Well, let us be people who are utterly convinced of the true gospel, both to believe and behave in a way that says Jesus is enough. Let's be people whose, whose words match up with our actions. Now, maybe one other application to add there. We might also note that perhaps there'll be times where you and I need to call one another out on matters where our lives do not match up to what we say or where we can see that someone's actions might unintentionally lead others astray. We can even take comfort that the apostles didn't always get it right. But if we are truly faithful to the gospel, to scripture, we won't dwell on issues or debates nearly as much as dwelling on Jesus to praise him and to reflect on his love. And not because we've got our doctrine all sorted out, but because he died for us. Okay, possibly the longest ever introduction, but useful to have all of that in our mind as we turn now uh, to chapter 3. We're going to consider the words that Paul had to say to the Galatian churches next. Now these words come right on the back of Paul vigorously defending his authority, dealing with the false teachers, presenting the true gospel from his own experience, and now with the Galatians in the palm of his hand, he hits them hard again. So, if you have your Bibles or your tablets, then let's read the first uh, 14 verses together of uh, Galatians chapter 3. Paul writes, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. 
The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now, at the risk of alienating our younger ones in the audience, most folks of a certain vintage will be familiar with this character. Fans of Dad's Army will recognise uh, the character Private Pike, played by uh, Ian Lavender. Too young to be called into active service, left instead to serve in the Home Guard in the Walmington-on-Sea platoon under the expert leadership of the long-suffering Captain Mannering. Now, whenever you see that face, what's the phrase that runs through your mind? You stupid boy. <laughs> you stupid boy. Normally made some mistake or was naive or some sort of childish uh, sense of humour. And it was always targeted uh, by Captain uh, Mannering. And you know, it's, it's a similar, um, I guess, statement that Paul makes to uh, the Galatians here. He says, you fools. Can you really be so spiritually dull? Who has bewitched you, he says in verse 1. We wonder what warrants uh, such uh, uh, an accusation. What, uh, what is it have they done? Uh, what is this folly uh, of the Galatians that I've put up there? Well, we know from what we've covered previously, they'd accepted the truth at outset, the gospel that Paul preached, embracing that sinners are justified by grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone. But now on account of the false teaching that was taking hold, they were now ad adopting this view that actually justification, that, that being made right before God, comes through obeying the law. And Paul explains clearly that this is a contradiction uh, of the gospel. Paul reminds them that before their eyes, Jesus was publicly crucified. And that was Paul's consistent message. Whatever he preached, it was always the same. We see that in other parts of, of Scripture. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 22 and 23? Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And slightly further on in chapter 2, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And just as Jesus himself announced from the cross that his work was finished, so Paul reminds the Galatians that they are made right before God, dependent only on Christ's work on the cross and not on their works after coming to faith. In this way, the only thing the Galatians were to do was to receive the good news by faith. They'd heard the truth, they'd believed it, and as a result were born into the family of God. And if you want to jump back just a few verses uh, to the end of chapter 2 and look at that last verse there, in verse 21, Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. In other words, to add good works to the work of Christ was an offence to his finished work. And so Paul goes on to present two arguments to back up his defence of the gospel to the Galatians. Firstly, from their own spiritual experience, and secondly, uh, from scripture. And we'll just get to that one as we get the right page.
So we've got two arguments from Paul. Spiritual experience uh, and um, from Scripture. <clears throat> so we're thinking here about verses uh, 2 uh, through to verse 5. Paul reminds them that they had truly experienced a meeting with God. Look at verse 2. Paul asks them how they received the Holy Spirit. He says, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Did they receive the Spirit by works or by faith? And the answer is clear. It was by believing. It was by faith. The Spirit came into their lives because they trusted in Jesus. Their Christian life began with the Spirit, as Paul puts it in verse 3 here. Now, it's important that we understand the work of the Spirit in our salvation and in our Christian living. The Holy Spirit convicts, doesn't he? Convicting the sinner of their need of a saviour. And when the sinner yields to the Spirit and trusts Jesus, then the sinner is then born of the Spirit and receives new life. Remember when we reveled in the riches of Ephesians chapter 1, verses that are just brilliant to keep coming back to. Let me read verses 13 and 14 from Ephesians 1. We read, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. And so having begun with the Spirit, Paul says, are you now trying to attain your goal by your efforts? Now, of course, the believer is filled with the Spirit and ought to be controlled by the Spirit on an ongoing basis after conversion. And Paul will teach later in this letter about the responsibility of walking in the Spirit and of the fruits of the Spirit, or the fruit, sorry, of the Spirit that should be evident in our lives. But these are the natural outworkings of our faith, not the means by which we can add to our salvation. So then, based on their own conversion experience, the believers in Galatia had received the Spirit by faith and not by the works of the law. And Paul draws on some more experiences from the Galatians in, in verse 5. God the Father continues to supply the Spirit in power and blessing, and this is done by faith and not by the works of the law. It was interesting uh, to learn that miracles among you, uh, in verse 5 there, can also be translated as miracles within you. The miracles that Paul speaks of would therefore include changes within the lives of the Galatian Christians, as well as signs and wonders within the church fellowship, all coming through faith. And so Paul highlights the folly in supposing that the law was needed to supplement the gospel. And so from the Galatians' own experience to Paul's uh, second argument, uh, that of uh, Scripture. As an aside, it's worth noting that it's always right to back up personal experience with the Word of God. We know that our experiences can be subjective, but God's Word is objective. We don't judge the Bible based on our experiences, but instead we test our experiences by the Word of God. Now, Paul's argument here is clever. Of course it is, because it's Paul. The false teachers wanted to take the believers back to the law, so Paul quotes the law. They magnified the place of Abraham, so Paul uses Abraham as one of uh, the witnesses for the defence. And Paul goes right back to Genesis 15. And we're all well acquainted with the story, I know. God made a covenant with Abraham, promising descendants as numerous as grains of sand and as stars in the sky. And crucially, Abraham believed God. 
despite the improbable nature of the claim, humanly speaking, given the advancing years of both he and his wife Sarah. And it is this belief in God that is credited to Abraham as righteousness, says Paul in verse 6 here. Abraham was not justified. He wasn't made right before God because he deserved it. Just think about the lies and half-truths that pervade the story of Abraham. And neither could Abraham have been justified through circumcision or by keeping the law because neither of them had been given yet, but simply because he believed God. And the Jewish people were very proud of the relationship with Abraham. The trouble was they thought this special relationship uh, guaranteed them eternal salvation, despite the warnings to the contrary. Remember, John the Baptist warned them that their physical descent did not guarantee spiritual life. We read in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. And Jesus himself made a clear distinction between Abraham's seed physically and his children spiritually. You can read that later in John chapter 8. And this ties in uh, with what Hamish shared a few weeks ago at Zach's dedication service. Remember, he said that salvation cannot be inherited. You might have heard it said before that God has no grandchildren. Instead, as Paul sets out in verses 7 to 9, it's those that believe uh, that are Abraham's children. The means by which the non-Jews, we read all nations from God's promise, remember, would be saved is faith. The Galatians were already children through faith and there was no need to be a son or a daughter through circumcision as was being promoted by the false teachers. Paul's logic is that if God promises to save Gentiles, non-Jews by faith, then the false teachers were wrong in wanting to take the Gentile believers back to the law. All those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham, as we read in verse 9. And Paul reckons that the Galatians should have spotted this false doctrine. They should have known through their own spiritual experience and from Scripture. And Paul isn't quite finished just yet. Having defended the gospel from the Galatians' own experience, and from scripture, he has some further words to add to anyone who's still holding on to the law as a means of salvation. Let's look at verses 10 to 14 in conclusion, which in essence really sums up all that we've been uh, thinking about as we see works versus faith. And Paul firstly talks about how we cannot be made right with God through our own efforts or works. And Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 27, which happened just to be in today's uh, scripture app reading, here in verse 10. It's a solemn curse is pronounced on all those who fail to keep all of the commandments. Or as James says in his letter in chapter 2, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. I mentioned the scripture app, and if you've been working through that, or indeed any reading plan that takes you from the Old Testament, it's one of those frustrations that you read that God's people just never seem to learn. They keep failing, they keep breaking the law. And since none of us can keep the law, every part of it, then we are likewise condemned. It was true of God's covenant people, and it's true of us. Nobody could ever live by the law, and it's this way that we see the law serves to show our guilt before God. Paul's own experience, as well as the history of Israel, proved that works righteousness can never save the sinner. Only faith righteousness can do that. Just think on some of the rebukes that Jesus had for the Pharisees who were experts at keeping the law. 
And having broken the law, which all of us except Jesus have done, we are under the curse of the law. So while he who does them shall live by them is true in verse 12, which is a direct quote from Leviticus, none have been able to except for Jesus. And that's why Paul concludes in verse 11, clearly no one is justified before God by the law. And this is what Warren Wearsby writes in his commentary on Galatians. He says, the, the, the Judaizers, these false teachers, wanted to seduce the Galatians into a religion of legal works, while Paul wanted them to enjoy a relationship of love and life by faith in Christ. For the Christian to abandon faith and grace for law and works is to lose everything exciting that the Christian can experience in his daily fellowship with the Lord. The law cannot justify the sinner, neither can it give him righteousness. The law cannot give the gift of the Spirit, nor can it guarantee that spiritual inheritance that belonged to God's children. The law cannot give life, and the law cannot give liberty. So why then go back into the law? So if justification cannot come through works, oops, spoiler alert, then it must come through faith. And verses uh, 13 and 14 sum up all that Paul has been saying and they really act as our conclusion tonight. It's all about Jesus. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He who had no sin became sin. He redeems us by becoming the curse. The curse was transferred from us to him and he took it voluntarily upon himself in order to deliver us from it. <clears throat> in the second half of verse 13 is a scriptural confirmation from Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 23. Criminals who were sentenced uh, to death under the Mosaic law were executed normally by stoning and then fixed to a stake or hanged on a tree as a symbol of their rejection. And this was a great humiliation because the Jewish people were very careful in their treatment of a dead body. And being nailed to a cross in crucifixion was the equivalent of this. And that's one of the reasons that the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews. If Jesus was the anointed of God, how could he be found hanged on a tree rather than found reigning on a throne? But it's only in the light of recognising that the curse Jesus bore was not his own that resolves this, that he became a curse for us. For who? Well, verse 14, for those in Christ Jesus and those through faith. Through faith in Jesus, we've been put right with God, kept for eternal life and are being renewed by the Spirit. How blessed are those who have believed in the name of Jesus. And Paul is saying, does the law put sinners under a curse? Then Jesus has redeemed us from that curse. Do you want the blessing of Abraham? It comes through Jesus. Do you want the gift of the Spirit? But you're a Gentile. Well, the gift is given through Jesus to the Gentiles. All you need is Jesus. There is no reason to go back to Moses and the law. And it all leaves us wondering how the Galatians could be duped. But I wonder, can the same be said of us? Are we quick to spot a false gospel? Or can we sometimes be guilty of adding to it? We might feel that we've taken that Salvation 101 course and that we very well understand that salvation comes through faith and that our works can't save us. But if we are honest, Adding to the gospel can actually be quite an easy trap to fall into. We might not be obviously promoting something different to the gospel of Jesus, 
But do we subtly imply that we actually hold to a works-based salvation by some of our actions? It's somehow built into us, I think, to boast about our works. Somehow we feel that need to measure ourselves against others. And the law or obedience affords us that opportunity. But the true believer measures himself not against other Christians, but with Christ. And so the challenge for us tonight is obvious, I think. Should there be anyone who has not yet responded to the good news of Jesus, then know that the only thing you need to do, like the Galatian believers at the start, is simply to respond in faith, believe the truth, and be born into the family of God. And for those of us who have responded in faith, be thankful for your salvation, but let's not fall into that subtle trap of supposing that we can somehow make ourselves more acceptable to God. The old law covenant says do and live, but the new grace covenant says believe and live. We trust in the finished work of Jesus and humbly at the cross we cast ourselves on him, he who bore our curse and seek his mercy. It's funny, one of the questions that Hamish asked us in that quiz this morning uh, was to, what was it? How many people do you need in a room to ensure you've got a better than 50-50 chance of having somebody with the same birthday? And the answer is 23, and I know the answer. And I was trying to explain to the boys how it works by some mathematical equations. But there's one equation that we've looked at before that's so much more important, that sums everything up we've been thinking about. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. May God uh, bless these thoughts to our hearts uh, this evening. Let's pray together. Father God, we come into your presence through the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. Lord, we thank you that through his, uh, through his death, Lord, that he took that curse that was ours upon himself. And Lord, that he has made us right in your sight. And Lord, as your children, we thank you that we have responded in faith through the prompting of your spirit. Lord, bless these thoughts to us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to live in the light of them. Lord, that our actions would be consistent with what we say. And Lord, that we would point others to that true gospel. And simply tonight, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. And we pray all these things in and through his name. Amen. Amen.